0: Let's pray. Lord, what we've been singing could not be more true. We need you. But the fact is, even though we were all just singing that, something in us hates neediness. We love the idea of self-sufficiency and being self-made men and women and being independent and autonomous but Lord we know that our very existence depends on you every heartbeat every breath every brain wave everything Lord is from your hand not only as our creator but as our sustainer we need you for existence and ongoing sustenance and everything Lord we're utterly absolutely needy before you and that is hard for us to accept so almighty creator we pray that you with your loving gracious power this morning would take each of us further down the road of healthy humility so that we can know the freedom of true repentance and complete rest and trust and saving faith in Jesus. Lord, help us to stop fighting you and the idea that we're needy. And help us to run to you and fall into your loving, strong, fatherly arms. And we pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. I'm sorry if it's always a really bad word to put in any so called apology. I'm sorry if. If you're sorry, be sorry. I'm sorry if I did anything wrong verdict's still not in apparently. I'm sorry if you were offended. I'm sorry but not really because it's really your problem if you were offended. I'm sorry that you, the second word you don't want to put in a so-called apology, you. You can't be sorry because of someone else. I'm sorry you felt hurt. I'm sorry you feel I did something wrong. I'm sorry you feel that I'm a really bad person. I'm sorry but, another really bad word to put in a so-called apology, I'm sorry but you started it. I'm sorry but I couldn't help it. I'm sorry, this is one I've used most, I'm sorry but I was just kidding. I'm sorry, but I was just trying to help. If, you, but. Here's another word you should completely avoid when you're trying to actually repent. I regret. That's a sidestep word. I'm f- I, I'm, I regret, regret, you felt upset. I regret that mistakes were made. <laughs> That's the most vague one. Oh, that's the one politicians make all the time. And and athletes who get caught cheating. I, I am amazed at all the fake apologies that I have said in my life that I'm tempted to say all the time that I hear constantly in our world. We've become masters at fake repentance. At fake apologies. And then... There's this. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, speaking to God, only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me no ifs no buts no use no regrets it's just true repentance and that's what we're after as I've been preparing to preach this message I've realized that true humility before God and true repentance and true freedom that comes from that true repentance is what God is after as we dive into our passage this morning in Luke 5 and I've realized deeply that this will take a miracle It'll take a miracle in proud human hearts, sinful fallen human hearts, to get to where God wants us to get this morning. But his word is powerful, the spirit is present, and so I'm deeply hopeful. We're going to find out that true disciples of Jesus uncompromisingly recognize their sin and repent of their sin. Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 5. That's where we are in this story of Jesus we find in the gospel of Luke. It is a story of Jesus where his heart for sinners couldn't be more clear. And we find a beautiful example in a few verses this morning of Jesus' heart for sinners. Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. Luke 5, 27. Help us, Lord. Jesus has just cast out a demon and cleansed the leper and healed the paralytic. And now there's another example of Jesus moving toward meeting and saving a sinner. Luke 5, 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled. At his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, i am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." You know, I'm wondering as we just read through that, if anything struck any of you that you think we need to make sure we don't miss, so I can blame you if I don't talk about it. Anything, I I really, I'd love to open it up right now. I think this happened a lot more in in the New Testament times than, than it tends to happen in churches these days. What struck you as we went through that of particular importance? Yeah, he's talking to the unrighteous righteous. Yeah, there, there there is irony a couple of times in this passage. Thanks, Philip. What else? What else struck you? It's stark, isn't it, Greer? He just gets up, it says, leaves everything, and follows Jesus. Now, we don't know if he went back at a later time and fixed all the loose ends he no doubt left behind but but that's a stark clear demonstration of the way disciples think beautiful thanks Greer. other other thoughts yeah he equates sinners with tax collectors well the pharisees do they they're all lumped together yeah They're lumped together into into one big group. They say, why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? You could use those two terms interchangeably. We'll see why in a bit. Good. Other thoughts? Yeah, isn't that beautiful, Nikki? He gives a, a big party. He invites all his friends that no doubt the disciples and the Pharisees didn't have access to like he did, and he's already seeking to engage and influence those in his sphere. Really interesting. And it's a big party. Yeah. Which is especially meaningful because he probably just quit his job. <laughs> right. He just left his source of income there. Good, Nikki. Thank you. Ah. Yeah, Jesus takes the initiative. That's right. That's right. He he moves toward them. He's not waiting around for people to come to him. He moves toward them. Excellent. Yeah, he grabs this this metaphor of a physician Healing the sick. Literally healing the sick in the previous passages, but not leaving that behind here when we're talking about spiritual healing. Excellent. Excellent. I knew you were brilliant people. Yeah, here's an excellent outline I heard from Colin Adams that I absolutely love. That in this passage, disciples are called in spite of our defects welcomed in spite of our detractors and gathered in spite of our differences. Is that great? We're called in spite of our defects, welcomed in spite of our detractors and gathered in spite of our differences. That's so good. So far in Luke, we've seen Jesus cast out a demon, heal the sick, provide fish for fishless fishermen, heal a leper, And heal a paralyzed man. And now he heals a despised social outcast. Verse 27, as as Stephen said, he moves toward a social outcast. He's not waiting around for Levi to come to him. And I think this is Matthew, who wrote Matthew's gospel, the tax collector. I don't think it's two different people, I think. It wasn't uncommon for people to have a a Greek name and a Hebrew name. And and I think this is Matthew, Levi, and he moves toward him as a tax collector. Jesus saw him. What's important to realize is this is one of those little three-letter English words that points to a Greek word that has a lot more meaning than the word saw has for us. This word has a lot more, it means you really looked. It means that he observed, he looked intently, he looked with purpose. Jesus looks long and hard and meaningfully at Levi here. He observes him, he's aware of who he is, and he moves toward him fully aware of who he is there's a conscious intentional particular and personal calling on this man's life it's anything but a random calling on Levi's life and it's ever it's never a random thing when god calls someone to himself and what i want you to realize is that he's already chosen peter james and john as his disciples called the sons of thunder Committed Jewish people. He's going to add Simon the Zealot, who hates the Romans more than anybody as a zealot. And here is Levi, a tax collector, a complete sellout to Rome, a betrayer of his people. So this calling is particular, it's conscious, it's intentional, and it's personal, and it's controversial. It's going to cause major friction and conflict and controversy among Jesus' disciples. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He does not need a course on team building. He knows exactly what he's up to here. He wants to take people who hate each other's guts and put them together as teammates and brothers And co laborers, just like he does in the church, in this church. People who would have nothing to do with each other if it weren't for Jesus, because he is the source of our unity. And what we see here is forgiveness leads to friendship and unity and being teammates. (laughs) This man was a tax collector. I don't know how that sounds to your ears, but any good Jew in the first century who heard those words, tax collector, would have hatred rise in his heart. A tax collector was some, someone who was from your people who nevertheless represented the oppressor of your people. This Roman, brutal overlord who took money from you to keep the empire going that was oppressing you. And they would tax you at every turn. There wasn't just a general tax. There was a road tax and a fishing tax. There was a tax for breathing almost. And if the tax collector provided to Rome what they expected him to provide, he could take way more than he needed to. And the reputation was they all did and they were all dirty. And they were all betrayers and traitor, traitors of their own people for selfish gain. One of the most gut-wrenching places I've ever been is called the House of Terror in Budapest. This is a photograph of the House of Terror. And it was amazing being in Hungary for a while, doing ministry, and, and realizing how incredibly difficult life had been for the people of Hungary. This is the the House of Terror. It's a museum now, and it's, it's a museum housed in this building on this corner that the Nazis took over when their fascism dominated Hungary. And almost a day didn't go by after the Nazis left that the communists moved in. And in many ways had an even more brutal uh, uh, oppression of the people of Hungary. And so they decided, after the communists left, to turn this into a museum. And they kept the torture chambers in the basement fully intact with all the instruments of torture and and murder down in the basement. And there are photographs of all the people who were killed in this building on the outside of the building. So when you walk down the sidewalk of this building, you see the faces of these Hungarians who were murdered by either Nazis or communists. It is a stunning place. I, 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 was, I, I was just so overtaken when we took a tour of this place and just walked around on the outside of the building. There are photographs of, of survivors. There are photographs of people there. But th- there was a room I will never forget. It's the last room you go into as you honor the faces and the names and the birth dates and the death dates of all these Hungarians. Hungarians who were murdered by these brutal people. The last room you go in is called the Room of the Betrayers. And they have names and photographs of Hungarians who sold out their people. I couldn't believe they did it. I mean, there are still no doubt all kinds of relatives of these people in the, the, the Hall of the Betrayers. And I went in and I just... I just felt this oppressiveness of of the need these folks had to, to put on display those who betrayed their own people. But then I'll never forget this moment. There was this switch in my mind. And I thought about the ultimate betrayal of sinful humans against our creator. And I had this thought. My photograph should be on that wall. Because I, like Judas... Betrayed Christ. I'm a betrayer. I didn't honor God. I, I dishonored Him. I hated Him in my sin. And so, so I, I was overwhelmed, and I just started to weep, thinking about my own sin and my own betrayal. And as bad as it was for Hungarians to betray their own people, how bad is it for us to betray our own Creator in our sin? And our sinfulness. But here's what I want you to know this morning. That Jesus is a God who loves to forgive. He moves toward us. He doesn't wait for us to go to him. He's a God who loves to love and seek and save the lost. Remember what Jesus says in chapter 4. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's who Jesus says he is and that's what Jesus came to do. And here we see him kicking that in the gear. It's in action here. And this has always been the heart of God. Listen to Psalm 34 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and and saves the crushed in spirit. I was talking to someone not that long ago who went through a horrible tragedy. And I'll never forget what she said. She said, The Bible says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. So why wouldn't I want to be brokenhearted? I've never forgot those words. What do we want most? Do we want lives of safety? Do we want lives of protection? Do we want lives that don't face up to reality? Or do we want lives near to the Lord who loves to draw near to the brokenhearted? Listen to Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and lofty place. And then listen to this. And also with him who is of a contrite spirit and a lowly spirit. Why? To revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. I've heard this passage preached many times. And always the main point is we should be like Jesus and be willing to eat with sinners. But before we can ever get to that point, we need to get to what I think is the main point. And it's this, Jesus is willing to eat with you. Before we ever get to the ministry implications of this, we've got to start with the gospel implications of this. Jesus is willing to sit down and table fellowship with you. When I say those words, that should be absolutely amazing to you. Oh, I think we've sung amazing grace so long, it doesn't have the impact it should any longer. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If you don't believe that God found you as a wretch, then you can never know the freedom we're talking about. Do you see yourself as someone, as a desperate sinner, is found by God in that condition? And he loves you in that condition. We can be so self-deceived. We can believe all the messages of radical human self-affirmation that we don't have a category for being a desperate, needy sinner before God. And we avoid that. Even in the church, we learn to talk all kinds of ways around the reality of our sinfulness. I was talking to Andre Marillo about this passage this week, and here's what he said. Misguided self-perception can actually rob someone of a spiritual dining experience with Jesus. If you don't know you need forgiveness, if you don't know you need Jesus as a savior, you'll never know the freedom and the forgiveness and the fellowship you can have through the Messiah. And our self-centered culture that has seeped into the church so often doesn't help us with this so often. Listen to one, one preacher says, any Messiah who comes along and propo- proposes to replace self-reliance with childlike God-reliance and self-confidence with a submissive God-confidence and self-determination with sovereign grace and self-esteem with magnificent mercy for the unworthy, that Messiah is going to be a threat to the religion of self-admiration. The religion of self-admiration is so prevalent in our day. But the Bible calls us to biblical God-focused humility, which is a powerlessness in ourselves, a spiritual bankruptcy, a helplessness before God that is so offensive to fallen prideful people, a moral uncleanness before God, a personal unworthiness. And if we're going to find any joy, if we're going to find any life or usefulness, it'll have to be all of God and all of grace. And we have a hard time with grace. Isn't it amazing that there's something in us that hates our need for grace? Now, we're okay with some. But total grace? Amazing grace, a comprehensive grace, God-initiated grace, not demonstrating any worthiness, which defies the definition of grace. It's all of grace. We're called to be blessed by being poor in spirit. And I could give you hundreds of examples of this. Let me just give you a few. Jacob says, I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the faithfulness which you've shown to your servant. David says the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken and contrite spirit. David is still humbled even more after good things happen, after blessings. Sometimes it's easy after great failures to be humbled, but how about after great successes? After this incredible blessing of people giving more than they needed as the collection for the temple. Listen to David's response. In the midst of blessing and success, what does he say? Who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given to you. Even in acts of good things, there's a humility among godly people. Solomon says, oh, Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I'm but a little child, I do not know how to go out or to come in. Job has this amazing experience with God. And what's his big conclusion? I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, and now my eye sees you. So I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. John the Baptist says, even who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie, he must increase, I must decrease. Later on in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 18, we have another tax collector who is receiving the blessing of God because of his humility, but not the Pharisee, but the tax collector standing far off. He would not lift up his eyes to heaven or beat his breath, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. The centurion in Luke 7, in just a couple chapters, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I'm not worthy to have you even come under my roof. I tell you, not ever in Israel have I found such faith, Jesus says. The Canaanite woman says she'd be satisfied with the crumbs from the table that fall from the master's table. And Jesus says, oh, great is your faith. And Peter, as we saw in the previous passages, Jesus brings about the miraculous catch of fish and what's Peter's conclusion? Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And as Kenny started our service, quoting Paul, who said, I'm the foremost of sinners, but received mercy from God. Do you see yourself as a desperate sinner in need of a Savior? If you don't, you'll never be able to truly meet that Savior. And if you do meet him without that, he won't be a Savior to you. He'll be a wise teacher who teaches you morality. Or he'll he'll be a self-help coach who makes your life improve or gives you life hacks. We're desperately wicked and we desperately need a Savior. And Jesus loves to save the sinner. And it's not just obvious ones like being betrayers of your people like tax collectors were. One of the most heinous expressions of pride is anxiety about the future, which we all struggle with, don't we? You know, we tend to feel just sorry for for us when when we feel anxiety about the future. Look what Isaiah 51 says. Listen to what he says to the anxious in Israel. I, even I am he who comforts you. Who are you? That you're afraid of man who dies and the son of man who's made like grass. Have you forgotten the Lord, your maker? They're fearful of what's to come from their enemies. And he's saying, who do you think you are to be anxious? (laughs) Do you think you're uncharged? Do you think you're running the show? How about perfectionism? Oh, I look at so many achievers in front of me right here. So many accomplished people. So many peop- people in, in our environment who, who are accomplishers. And, and we can feel so different than a tax collector. But the book of James is written to rebuke people like us. It's written to rebuke people who think they've got life all figured out. Come, you who say, or today, or tomorrow go to this or that place and make a profit, while well, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life but a mist that's here today and tomorrow? Gone. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord's Lord wills, we will do this and that. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you see yourself as a sinner? Until you do, you'll never see Jesus as the savior you need him to be. So verse 28 shows us the response that Greer points out. He leaves everything to follow Jesus. He leaves his tax booth. Jesus says, follow me, and he follows him. He leaves everything and follows Jesus. This is great commitment with amazing brevity. He follows him. And the follow here is in a tense that has an enduring implication. It's, it's not just a quick thing. It's not just a day or a week or a month thing. It's got enduring, ongoing implications. It means he reorients his entire life. That's what disciples do when they meet Jesus. Because we follow him, not just his teaching, and our loyalty to Christ becomes our greatest loyalty. And this includes repentance mentioned in verse 32 to the Pharisees, he's saying, Repentance is what I'm calling him to do. Repentance is what Levi experiences here. And I want you to see verse 29, as Nikki pointed out, repentance leads to celebration, not grieving over what we've left behind. What we have found so outweighs what we leave behind that we have a party, we celebrate. Levi followed and led others to hear from Jesus. And he went to those in his sphere of influence, other tax collectors. Luke likes meals. I don't know if you've noticed that when you've read the Gospel of Luke. I love meals. There are times I sit down with friends for a good meal and I'm giddy. And I start to be a little concerned that I'm too excited about this, that this is too fun for me. But it is, and I think it's usually quite appropriate because meals are a foreshadowing of the great banquet to come someday. When we gather with friends, and isn't there something that goes to a different level when it's not just you and a friend, but you and a friend and food? (laughs) Really, there's something wonderful about it, having our needs met in the presence of one another through a meal. And that's what he does. He throws a big party. He celebrates. And Jesus is the guest of honor. How different than the scene we'll see later when the sinner woman from the city comes in and Jesus is eating at the Pharisee's house and he's completely disregarded rather than honored. And Jesus points that out And here in the home of the filthy tax collector. He's the guest of honor. And they're having a party because... Levi's free of all the social stigma and all the hatred being this despised man of Israel. And we need to seek to use our resources, our homes, our money, our time to to have little parties all the time to celebrate God's amazing grace. In our lives. That's how we should view all our resources. Is your home in your mind not your place only of refuge, which is fine, but a place of refuge for others? Are your resources an opportunity to point people to the Sabbath rest that Jesus can provide? Very unusual guests here, a very diverse guest list, and very unusual outcomes. You know, later on in Luke, Jesus will give us advice on how to have parties. Look what he says. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you to return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Is that amazing? There's nothing wrong. There's plenty of examples in the Bible of having friends and family at a feast and weddings and doing those things. But what he's saying is, 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 do you use your home? Do you use your resources to create shalom for other people? Even people that may steal something. You know, we tend to think of Christian hospitality as having your friends over, but how about someone who's likely to steal something or say something really questionable at best that you'll have to do damage control with the kids about later? (laughs) You know, New Testament hospitality isn't just inviting safe people. It's not just inviting people you just love clicking with. It's inviting people who make your life harder and trusting God to enable you to love them in the power of the Spirit rather than your natural resources. One author says that Jesus got crucified because of the way he ate. That's that's an interesting, the way he ate, He, he ate with sinners and tax collectors. He ate in a redemptive way, foreshadowing the final day when that banquet will be more glorious than anyone we've ever attended. But then, like we've seen so many times in the Gospels, the people who should know better than anybody else what we're talking about enter the scene and they're grumbling. Something wonderful is happening here and the people who should know better than anybody how wonderful it is are opposing it. They've got all the right information but they don't have the right heart and there's judgmental grumbling among the religious leaders and what we need to realize is sometimes religious people and even religious leaders can be missing God more than anybody else. Pharisees. I mean, Pharisee literally means separated one. And and don't be too judgmental of them. Some of the most judgmental Pharisaical people I've met are the ones who are very judgmental and Pharisaical toward Pharisees. It's so easy to get on our high horses, right? As if we don't have any Pharisaism in us. I know I do. Their response comes probably after the event because they would never be found in this meeting. Maybe it, they're looking from the outside and they go to Jesus' disciples grumbling about this. And sometimes grumbling is way worse than yelling. I think I'd rather be yelled at than grumbled at. They grumbled in the wilderness. The Israelites did. They complained. There was an ingratitude in their hearts. They didn't understand their neediness in God's grace. They, these leaders, recognize that you can't totally avoid sinners, but table fellowship? That's going way too far. But Jesus informs them in verse 31 that good doctors love to be around sick people, people who know they're sick because that's who they're trained to help. They know these people, the greatness of their sin, and stand closer to God than those who are proud and unaware of how much they need forgiveness. And in verse 32, he rebukes the unrighteous righteous who don't know how sick they really are. They're like the church at Laodicea who think they're doing so well, but they're doing terribly. And Jesus offers acceptance that calls us to repentance. It's not just acceptance. We need to be so careful about this. Biblical acceptance is intended to lead us to repentance. There's this idea growing in our day that if you really love people, you'll never call out their sin. You'll never call them to turn from their sin. But that's not what Jesus is about. He loves us too much to leave us where we are. True acceptance, biblically speaking, is a call to repentance in the midst of that acceptance. There's an invitation to a table and to be received with love and affection. But that love and affection, loves so much it never would leave someone in their sin. Self-deceive that this is a way to life rather than a way to death. And good doctors tell us the truth. They don't tell us we have a cold if we have cancer. And those who know the greatness of our sin will know the greatness of the need for forgiveness. The Pharisees aren't right before God. Jesus is not saying that. Just read in a few chapters Luke 11 when he goes through his woes, and we will see he thinks the Pharisees are in a very unrighteous state. And so now we get to the application that's typically the main one here. Do you love sinners? Do you believe God loves you as a sinner? Do you put yourself in the same category as the worst of sinners? And then do you love those who are still living in their sin and not freed by Jesus? See, evangelism goes beyond preaching. It gets personal. And we invite people into our lives that make our lives more challenging, as if life wasn't challenging enough. But the beauty of this is we can depend on God to invite people into our lives who break our things and break our hearts we know that love opens us up to hurt we know that when we put our hearts out toward people our hearts can get stomped on and we do it anyway because we want to be like Jesus the one we represent in our lives isolation from sinners is not the call of the disciple Engagement, willingness to associate with sinners, and offering them hope is the role of the one who follows Jesus, says Daryl Bach. Jesus does not wait for the sick to come to him. He goes after them. And we should be willing to meet others beyond casual contact. We need to see people beyond the surface. I love that word in verse 27. I was never aware of this until I cited this week. But this, this Greek word is a beautiful word. It's really looking at someone. That's what it says about Jesus in this tax collector leaf. He really looked at him. Do you really look at people beyond the surface? This, these two photographs have been going around the Internet. It, they're just, I'll never forget these images. We have a photograph, guys. There we go. This is the same person. This is Jenny Burton. Her mother introduced her to marijuana when I think she was seven. At the time she was 12, she was a meth addict. Her mother was a drug dealer. At the time she was 15, she was a heroin addict. A series of abusive relationships, 17 felonies, three times in prison. If you saw Ginny Burton in that first photograph, what would your response be? Now it's easy to look at that second photograph and say, oh, what a delightful young person. It's much easier to see the image of God in her. It's much easier to see someone who I would want to have a conversation with, but maybe you'll catch a glimpse of that neck tattoo and have second thoughts, even in the graduation photo. Do we have eyes to see in that first photograph someone we should move toward in Christ-like love and compassion and engage those who are scary now i'm not saying we shouldn't be wise i'm not saying we shouldn't be careful jenny burton would tell you the same thing listen what she said i am that person i have 17 felony convictions i'm the person you used to clutch your bag more tightly when i walked by you i'm the person that would randomly attack somebody in public everybody was a victim and everybody was prey When you're stuck in the street and you smell like feces and you haven't showered in forever and you can't make it into a social service during working hours because you're too busy trying to feed your addiction and your addiction is bigger than you. And you've compromised your integrity a number of times and over and over and over again. And you're starting to victimize other people on the street. You're hopeless. You can't stand your life. You'd rather be dead than alive. I spent most of my addiction wishing that somebody would just blow me away. Nobody wants to hurt anybody's feelings, she says. Everybody wants to be loving and supportive, which means we don't hold up a mirror to people. We don't want to tell anybody they can't do this. We're just going to support them to death. We're going to love them to death. It's not love. I'm grateful that Pierce County Sheriff loved me so much to arrest me. I'm grateful that the judges loved me enough to incarcerate me because those incarcerations gave me an opportunity to work myself into a changed life. Do we have the eyes to see? They're God's eyes beyond the surface. And I bet for many of us in this church, the first photograph actually brings compassion. You're not afraid of the first photograph. You are the kind of person who would move toward her. But how about that person who's self-assured, successful, that you despise? See, it's not just a meth addict that we can recoil from like they're a tax collector in the first century. It's all kinds of people. Listen to this, America's most at-risk group is preteens and teens from affluent, well-educated families. In spite of their economic and social advantages, children of affluence experience among the highest rates of depression, substance abuse, anxiety disorders, body image complaints, and unhappiness of any group of children. 22% of adolescent girls from financially comfortable families suffer from clinical depression. This is three times the national rate of depression for adolescent girls. Things are not always as they seem. We need all hands on deck, moving toward each other and caring for one another with Christ-like, spirit-enabled love. We can't sit around waiting for them to come to us. We can't sit around waiting until we have the right Enneagram number to do it. We've got to be people who move toward others, trusting God to use us, often in spite of ourselves. Because what we find in this passage is that the Pharisees were thinking, come on, Jesus, impurity is transferable, which is what the Bible teaches in the Old Covenant. But what Jesus is coming to teach is, yes, impurity can be transferable, but so can holiness. And Levi's repentance leads to a feast. And no one's beyond God's reach because he's gracious and loving and compassionate and willing to go to the greatest lengths necessary to save us. God initiates his saving work and he brings about that saving work through us, his people. And when we truly follow Jesus and we're willing to leave everything else to be with him, when we truly follow Jesus and we don't grieve what we lose but rejoice in what we gain, When we truly follow Jesus and we don't care about the scorn of others, and when we fear God so much, we don't fear anyone or anything else, we run to the feet of Jesus and we find a Savior who loves to save sinners like us. So, what do we do? We repent and believe. We, as Day Nortland says, collapse into Jesus. And don't even go looking for an experience of repentance or an experience of faith primarily. Go looking for Jesus. Go looking for him. Because when you find him, you'll repent. And when you find him, you'll trust. Don't go looking for an experience that could head down the road of self-centeredness again. But go looking for Jesus. You don't really see your sin for what it is until you see it in light of the blinding glory of the face of Christ. You don't really trust him until you see him as trustworthy. So as a church, let's go looking for Jesus together because everything else will naturally flow from that. It's about Christ, the great physician who loves to heal sin-sick sinners. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin, So that in him we we might become the righteousness of God. If you've never trusted Jesus this morning. If you've never really seen your sin for what it is, if you just excused it and rationalized it and blamed it and minimized it, oh, this morning is the the morning to say, no, I'm desperate. I'm a sinner. I have no excuses. I can't blame it on anybody. I just need Jesus. And you will find a Jesus who loves to forgive you. That's what he came to do. Go to him. All of us, whether you've never trusted him before, if you have trusted him, let's go to him like never before. There'll be people up here to pray with you at the end of the service, pray with a friend, pray pray with a, a family member. But let's leave here more collapsing into Jesus than we ever have before. Heavenly Father, help us. We are a people who do anything to avoid our neediness. We're grateful that you tell us the truth like a good doctor about our condition that leaves us at the end of ourselves and at the feet of Jesus. Lord, would you please help us to collapse into Jesus like never before this morning? All of us, even Richard and Ruth, who have been walking with them longer than probably anyone here. All of us, Lord, I pray whether we've we've been walking with Jesus our whole lives as long as we can remember for decades or or whether we've never really trusted him before, I pray this would be this morning, the morning that we all draw closer to Christ, depend on him like never before, and then move out toward sinners and sufferers in this world who desperately need ambassadors of the Savior. And we pray this. In his mighty and matchless and kind and compassionate name, amen.